Episode 13 of We Built This Life is about Davon Polium, a chef and the owner of Tortuga Kombucha. This is the first episode in a mini-series focusing on a few amazing small businesses in Baltimore, Maryland. Welcome to We Built This Life. This is the podcast that tells stories about entrepreneurs, freelancers, and other business owners who have built their working lives from that first inkling of an idea into careers that help them make the impact that they want to make on this world. My name is Jennifer Walker. I'm a freelance writer, and I love to hear stories about people who have built careers that are meaningful to them. So on this podcast, you'll hear from people who have done just that. They're going to talk about their path to their current work and the risks they took to build their careers from the ground up. Thank you so much for listening today. Hello, welcome. My name is Jennifer Walker, and I am so glad that you're here today. I am especially excited about this new series I'm doing. It kicks off with this episode, episode 13, and I'll be doing at least three episodes, maybe four, focusing on small businesses in Baltimore City. So it's my home city. I haven't lived here all my life, but I was born here and I've been back here for the last 10 plus years. I have a lot of pride in this city and I'm so happy that I have this opportunity to highlight some of the amazing small business entrepreneurs and the work they're doing here. Now, I do want to say, even if you're listening today and you don't live in Baltimore, there are still all the same story elements here about what it is like to start and grow a business and the challenges and the successes and the advice that's in most of the episodes when we built this life. That's all still here. So even if you're not local, there's still a lot in this episode for you. But if you are from Baltimore or Maryland, this is a way to learn more about a few of your neighbors and to support them and their businesses and in turn support the city that you want to live in. So today, for the first episode in this series, we'll have a story about Davon Polium, who is a chef and the owner of Tortuga Kombucha. Davon has had his business for about two years now, and here on this episode, he's going to talk about the role that food has played in his life when he was young and how he built his career as a chef, and even a little bit about the restaurant industry and COVID-19 and how he has been affected by that, how the industry will continue to be effective for a while from his perspective. Then he's going to talk about how he got interested in kombucha and how he found this niche for himself within this larger kombucha space. And then Devon is also a dad. His daughter is probably about seven months old at the time I'm recording this. And Devon is home with her while he's working on his business. So he'll talk about that balance between work and family. Devon also talks about his business model or focus, which is that he wants people to drink his kombucha and to be able to taste the tea that was used to make it, but it's more than that. It's also about how he built a business that embodies a different way of life and how the tea represents for him that he can still be the ambitious, goal-oriented person he always was when he was a chef, but also have patience and understand that less is more and have a personal life. Time for his wife, time for his daughter. Devon wants Tortuga Kombucha to embody this way of life, as I understand it. And I think that's what a lot of people like about owning their own businesses, that the culture of the business can embrace their ideals and be a reflection of them. And Devon is going to talk about what that looks like for Tortuga Kombucha. Just a note before we start, at the end of the episode, I will talk about where you can find Devon's products, the Tortuga Kombucha products. So he sells at a few local places in Baltimore City. The kombucha is available through his website, and he also has something called a kombucha club, which I joined, and I will talk a little bit more about that. Okay, let's get into Devon Pulliam's story. Davon Pulliam was first introduced to kombucha at a farmer's market in 2015. He was the sous chef at La Cuchara in Hamden, a neighborhood of Baltimore at the time, and the chef at the restaurant wanted him to get up early one morning and go to this farmer's market. Davon had had a late night the night before, and he got up early, and he went to the market, as the chef had asked him to do, and he ended up talking to someone from Hex Ferments, which is another Baltimore-based company that makes fermented products, And at that booth, that is where Davon had his first kombucha, and it made a big impression on him. When I actually was at La Cuchara, the chef, he was like, we're going to go to the market super early in the morning. And I was like, yeah, this sounds awesome. And I hung out too much, and early in the morning was very early. And so I was super grumpy at 6 in the morning before he had to go work a 12-hour shift because sous chefs don't have lives. That's the facts. Uh, (laughs) 
So, you know, you get some produce and I'm like, oh man, this this is crazy. And I saw Hex Ferments was there. The guy who was selling it probably was the owner at the time. He was just like, yo man, you want to try some kombucha? And I was like, sure. And, he's, and I was like, I'm a little, you know, I, ha- I hung out too much last night. He's like, oh, this is going to help you out a lot. And so then I bought a bottle and I was just drinking it all day and I was on fire. I was just like, man, this, this kombucha stuff is awesome. And I... <laughs> I was just, I don't drink caffeine. Kombucha is fermented tea. That is the core of it. You take sweetened tea and you just ferment it with a live culture called the SCOBY. A SCOBY is a symbiotic culture of bacteria and yeast. So that's what the acronym means. And it looks like a jellyfish. And what it is, is no different than like the mother in vinegar or the starter for sourdough. It's just the base bacteria yeast, the culture that you need to make that specific drink, which is kombucha. Wine uses yeast or the natural yeast on the grapes. Beer uses yeast. So everything that's fermented, it needs some sort of bacteria in order to facilitate that fermentation. And that's how I got into it. I was just making it for me and my girlfriend at the time, who is now my wife, because she was like, oh, I love kombucha. And so we both were drinking a lot of it. She was like, I would like to make it, but I don't want to handle that thing, the scoby, because it looks like a jellyfish. And so then I was like, I'll make it. And so then it turned into her saying, hey, let's do this flavor. Hey, let's do this flavor. And I was like, all right, cool. And then I, we were doing that. I was still working in kitchens at the time, but it was a hobby. It was just me making kombucha to better my gut health or just to facilitate good bacteria in my stomach. So, you know, kimchi does it, Greek yogurt, sauerkraut, all those things. It just introduces good bacteria to the body just to keep your system acute. And then I was sharing it with people. And then I was like, oh, this is really good. And then, you know, and someone says, this is really good. And then you get ideas. So before we get into how Devon actually built Tortuga Kombucha, let's go back to his childhood and where his interest in food started. He remembers the Southern food his grandmother made and that it was important to his dad, who tried to have a baking company of his own, that Devon and his brother learn how to cook. As a kid, my dad raised me and my older brother, and he wanted to instill skill sets into us so that we can be independent. And so cooking was one of them. And my dad actually wanted to be a chef and go to the Culinary Institute of America, but he had two kids in New York City, so that's a little challenging. He tried to run like a homemade baking company out of his house. It didn't like take off, but people would request rum kicks and stuff like that from him when we were younger. I didn't understand what was going on. I just thought he was doing favors for people. But the white cardboard box with the red and white butcher twine kind of looking string was something I vividly remember about what he did often. And then my grandma, she's from Virginia, so she just cooks Southern food all the time. At the time, I thought it was gross, but she made oxtail with llama beans. So she would just braise the oxtails and then take the bones and then cook the llama beans with that. And that was one of the dishes. I was like, I would never want to eat this then. But now I'm like, man, that was awesome. But that was like the one main thing. She made home fries and the same old cast iron skillet that sat on the back burner. And you're like, Grandma, you going to clean that thing? She's like, no, that's the flavor. And I'm like, what are you doing? And it was like that kind of old Southern food where you didn't understand why it was done that way. But now I really appreciate it. She liked liverwurst and mustard relish. It was just so random then. I don't want to say it's gross, but it, it's still not as appetizing when you talk about it. But when you eat it, you know, it's refreshing. Then when I was in high school and for your senior project, they want you to choose a major or like a career path. So I was cooking for my family in high school and middle school. And it was just something that I was interested in and good at. So I decided to take it as a career. While he was in high school, Devon worked at a restaurant for two years, and he was in the kitchen at times then. In addition to his other responsibilities, he was pulled into the kitchen when needed. So he had experience in the field, and it was at this restaurant that the chef there encouraged Devon to go to culinary school. My first job was at Southern Blues in Randallstown, which is still open. It was a carryout, so they make food in bulk, and it's in a steam table. And people come in, and they order it, and they could, like look at it. So I worked there for two years from 11th and 12th grade to also to pay for all of the senior and junior stuff. And there I pretty much progressed from fryer, fry cook, dishwasher. And I was actually one of the chefs, I don't, in quotation marks, because I was 16, 17 at the time. I don't want to say I was a chef at that age, but I was like the part-time night chef where like if we needed more candy yams or prep done, 
I would do that in addition to the fryer, cash register, or whatever other job I was assigned. So that was when I kind of really started getting into it. And at the time, I guess this is 10 plus years ago, I was watching old school Food Network with like Rachel Ray and Emeril Lagasse and Iron Chef Japan because they originated in Japan. So I was watching that and then the American version. And then the chef actually at Southern Blues, he passed away a while ago, but he went to the CIA. And so I kind of channeled my inner ambitiousness through him. And he was like, you should do it. And I was just like, really? And he's like, yeah, go do it. You don't have to work here for the rest of your life. And I was like, okay. (laughs) So it was just kind of the, you know, stars and all of the circumstances kind of was just like saying, hey, you should just do it. You don't have a reason not to. So I, I decided to go to the Culinary Institute of America from high school. Devon started at the Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park, New York in 2007. And kind of a theme he began to see after working at Southern Blues and then going to a different food environment, in this case culinary school, is that he would gain experience and confidence in one place. And then he'd go to the next place and he'd realize he has so much more to learn because there are so many cuisines and culinary environments out there and styles of cooking. Devon also found that the way he had to learn in culinary school almost felt like the opposite of the way he had learned in school throughout his life up until that point. So that as well, just wrapping his mind around this new way of learning was an adjustment. When I started college, I felt like I was cool and I knew what I was doing because I was working in a kitchen and it was just a soulful kitchen. But then I was immediately just broken by the reality of what is out there besides mass production, uh, carry out cuisine, soulful cuisine. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just so many other options. And I was discouraged initially because I was like, oh man, I'm going to be like one of the best cooks here or chefs at the time because I didn't know how to distinguish the terms. And I thought I was going to be like this awesome, you know, African-American young kid and come out of school and like be a chef. But the reality kicked in and I realized how much I didn't know and how hard the job was because it's demanding. You're kind of forced to teach yourself and learn in order to be relevant, but also in order to get better. But you also have to put in the physical activity of labor in order to compete and produce for the people who want to eat your food. And those two combinations are like taking like brain work and physical work and putting them together. And most jobs, you don't do both. So the way the curriculum worked out was pretty much that they gave you the assignment, which was, hey, you're going to break down a whole fish. And so the first day, they'll just tell you, we're going to be doing lesson three. And lesson three is break down whole fish. And then that is it. And then when you walk in, (laughs) you walk in and then they're asking, the the instructor is asking you questions like, what part of the fish is this? What cut would you use to cut this type of fish? You have to self-educate. So like, oh, that's a salmon. You do straight cut. And if you didn't research because you knew it was coming, then you're already behind in class. Because then you would get a demo that would show you how to do it. But if you didn't know the terms and the locations, then you were behind when they were talking about it in front of you. It was like reverse, I don't want to call it reverse teaching, but it was like be aware of the information and then apply. That's how it kind of worked. And I was never used to learning that way. I was used to learning through doing something, but not research and then doing and then like applying later. And then that's how it works in restaurants too. You know, you go, you research and then you test and then you practice and then you know, you're not going to put a test item on the menu at first. It's going to take at least 10 to 25 or more times before a major item is changed or you've done it for millions of years beforehand. So that was a big challenge for me that I had to learn. After his time at the Culinary Institute of America, Devon came to Baltimore for his first restaurant job as a culinary school graduate. And that first job was at Petit Louis Bistro in the city. And this French restaurant is owned by chef Cindy Wolf and Tony Foreman, who is a restaurant tour and wine director. They currently own five big name restaurants in Baltimore. Chef Wolf has been a James Beard finalist for the Best Chef Mid-Atlantic eight times. And Devon's first post-culinary school job was at one of their restaurants. And he had that same experience of feeling confident going in and then realizing that he was in a new environment and there was more to learn. So shout out to Chef Sydney Wolf. She's a CIA grad as well. And she came to the school and I wanted to go to work at Petit Louis as my externship. I was unable to at the time, but my first job out of college was at Petit Louis. I worked there for two and a half years. And when I got there, the same thing happened. (laughs) Whereas it's like, I thought I was awesome. I thought I was like, oh, I know what I'm doing. But then it was like, yo, man, 
you have to keep up with the pace because Petit Louis is no joke. So it's classical. It's like French American bistro. I would say just mostly French. Not not really that much American in there. And they're busy. And so when you go in there, you have to be aware of how to do the knife cuts. You have to be aware of the terms because the menu is mostly written in French. There are English translations for the ingredients, but it's in French and it's hard. My first week there, I was you know like, oh yeah, I'm going to work at Petit Louis. And I went to Eddie's, which is down the street. And I was like, oh yeah, I'm working there. And one of the cashiers was like, yeah, that place is hard. And I, I was like, how is it hard? Like, I never heard someone describe a job as hard. Usually it's like, it's busy or whatever, but not hard. Except Shani Wolf and Tony Foreman, they would come in. And at the time they had a, a good amount of restaurants, but not as many as they do now. And so they would come in. They came in like every Tuesday. It was weird. They're so like consistent. And I was on Garmage, which is like the salad and cold apps station. And I would make the mescaline salad. Just the mescaline salad is like, I remember because, you know, it was the first thing where I was called out again. And it was Parmigiano Reggiano, red wine vinaigrette, salt, pepper, and mescaline greens. That's all it was. But every time they came in, they would say, oh, it's too gritty because you had to cut the greens and wash it. So if I didn't wash it well enough, they'd say, oh, you got sand in your greens. Then it'd be like, oh, you overdressed it. Oh, you need more Parmesan. So it was like every single time when I didn't get it right, they would tell me. And I appreciate it. But at the time, I was young. I was only 19. And and I was like, no, I'm making it right. And it's, it's not sand. It's black pepper. You know, trying to say that they're wrong. But I was wrong. <laughs> so it's a lot of pressure, but it's for you to get the quality standard. When people go there, they go there for the quality and the service. If it's not consistent every single time, people are going to call you out. If you find a rock in your salad green, it's because somebody didn't wash the greens. Yes, the greens are fresh, but you don't serve dirt to people. You serve fresh, clean food. That's the representation of your business. So I had to learn that. (laughs) Did you learn how to make that salad really well? So well that I'm able to recite all of the ingredients and all of the situations to you uh, 10 years later. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I remember a friend telling me about a chef that she was friends with and at this restaurant that the chef worked at, she had to make mashed potatoes so often. Like it was like so many times a day she was making mashed potatoes over and over, just fine tuning the process and perfecting, you know, the amount of each ingredient. And she got really good at making mashed potatoes because just every day she was making it over and over. You know, you talking about the salad that you learned how to make really well kind of instantly made me think of that other experience I had heard about a young chef in a restaurant. Yeah. I don't know if there's a specific formula for how many times you have to do something to remember and for it to be ingrained in your person. But you do tasks consistently. And when you do something over and over again, your brain gets bored because, you know, it's the same thing and repetitive and we're humans and we look for excitement. But it's second nature and like pump puree, like you were saying, or the Mexican salad or any other dish. If you have 100 people come in and 50 of them order it, and, and that's just one day, you did it 15 times just in one service. Do that for two years, you most likely, <laughs> you should do it well. Around the time that Devon had been at Petit Louis for about two and a half years, he started to think about these goals that he had set for himself. He wanted to be a sous chef by the age of 25 and a chef by the age of 30. And he started to feel like he needed to think about how to make these goals happen. And he felt like in order to get closer to them, he needed to leave Petit Louis. I guess my age and my self-goal-orientedness kicked in and I wanted to move up more and I wanted to be a sous chef. I wanted to be a chef. And because it was such a large company, but people stayed there, the turnover wasn't very high at the time because most restaurants, the turnover of employees are pretty high or consistent in maybe six months to a year. So there's room to grow or to move up. But when I was there, all the sous chefs and the chefs have already been there for five plus years, and it didn't look like they were going anywhere. And for me, if I wanted to move up or to increase my credentials, it was either stay there for a very long time or go somewhere else and, you know, learn through trial and error again. So (laughs) after two years of being on Garmage, I had a year on the line. Finally, they let me on the line and I was doing lunch saute. 
So I got to do like the omelet and brunch time I was doing the scrambled eggs and the French toast and the croque madame and all those things. And then when they gave me the opportunity to do it, I was like, yeah, I could do this. I'm awesome. And then I hit that, you know, ego a thing again. (laughs) So then I was like, oh, I could be a sous chef. So then one of my friends from college, he invited me to go to Cleveland to work with him. And he wanted me to be like his number two. And so I was like, yeah, man, I'll help you out. So I I went to Cleveland. So you were goal-oriented from a pretty young age, right? Because you were, what, 21 when you left? Yeah, I was 21. I am naturally lazy. Like, I don't care what anybody tells me. They'll say, oh, man, you work so hard. He's like, I work hard because if I don't, I'm not going to do anything. I'm like a black and white kind of person. Like, if I'm not doing anything, I'm chilling. And if I'm doing something, I'm doing it. And I have to make a goal in order to motivate myself to do it. So I always have to have goals for myself. And that's how I circumvent my inner laziness. So you're like fighting that natural instinct, kind of? Yeah. If I didn't make any goals, you know, I would just sit in the same restaurant or the same job. It doesn't matter if it's a restaurant or not. And I would become complacent. And then those things that I said earlier about challenging yourself and learning new things and learning and then applying, I wouldn't do it because I knew how to do all the things in front of me already. So moving somewhere else and going to other restaurants was a way to, you know, force yourself to learn new techniques or it could be the same ones, but every restaurant does the same thing differently. So you're going to learn something. So when I was in high school, I wanted to become a sous chef by 25 and a chef by 30. And that's really ambitious because it's just not realistic. That was still in the back of my mind when I was 21. I was like, man, I only got three more years to reach this random goal. The age had nothing to do with anything. So I was trying to reach that goal. And I I think I did, but ultimately I should have been a little bit more patient. So Devon went to Cleveland and he was a lead line cook there at Cowan Hubbard and a line cook at La Albatross Brasserie and Bar. Then he came back to Baltimore in 2014 and worked at the now closed but amazing because I ate there a couple of times before Fleet Street Kitchen in Harbor East as a lead line cook. He was there for about a year and then he became the sous chef at La Cuchara in Hamden. That was when he had that experience of trying the kombucha. So he did reach his goal. He was a sous chef by age 25. And La Cuchara, where he was at the time, focuses on Basque cuisine, which is cuisine from northern Spain in the south of France. And it is a cuisine that Devon would continue to cook at other positions. But this is it. We're up to 2015 when Devon had his first kombucha at the farmer's market. For the next three years, Devon made kombucha as a hobby in addition to his work as a chef. And within that time frame, he left La Cuchara. He worked as a culinary instructor for a while at the National Academy Foundation. And because he also had an interest in cider, he started working at Ancho Cidery in Washington, D.C. And through studying cider with the cider maker at Ancho, Devon realized that he wanted to learn business too. So starting a small business of his own made sense. And kombucha, of course, became the focus of that business. And then within that sort of umbrella of kombucha, he's found a niche. So kombucha is made from tea and sugar. Devon decided that he would make kombucha that actually tastes like and celebrates the tea that it is made from. So if you've ever had kombucha from the grocery store, which is the only kombucha I had had before tasting Tortuga Kombucha's products, it's made with tea and sugar and other things that you add to it, just like Devon's products are. But in my experience, the kombucha that I've gotten from the grocery store comes in flavors like blueberry and guava, and it tastes more like a fruit soda. You can't really taste the tea, which is fine. But just for comparison, Devon decided he was going to make kombucha that tastes like the tea that he was using to make the kombucha. So for example, the first flavor I had of Devon's is called Gemmaicha, which is a green tea mixed with puffed and toasted brown rice. And Devon describes the flavor on the Tortuga Kombucha website as toasted nut notes, medium body, low bubble count. So the nut notes, that flavor that's in the tea is the final flavor that you'll taste in the kombucha. So while Devon was at Ancho Cidery, this business idea for Tortuga Kombucha began to take shape. This is part of that ambitious goal-oriented Devon. So in 2018, I was working at Ancho and I was at the tasting room there. They made all the cider. 
and I was in the tasting room watching the cider maker. And another thing I was really interested in was cider. I'm still interested in cider a lot. That's the reason why I went to DC to work at the cidery and tasting room because it's the closest cidery at the time that had a kitchen. So I was there and I was sharing my kombucha with the cider maker. <laughs> I was like, yo, man, I made this. You should drink it. And I would bring it. And he was like, oh, that's good. And he's very knowledgeable in making cider and fermentation. So I was picking his brain. But also the cider program and cider education at Ancho was really, really top notch. And so I was learning about fermentation. I was learning about you know different varietals of apples, regions where people really had a large cider culture. And all those things were resonating with me. And then my goal-oriented Davon was like, hey, you know what? This kombucha is a good product. I've been making it for three plus years now. And I wanted to learn how to be like learn business. Like, I know that sounds strange, but I knew how to cook in kitchens. I knew how to adapt in kitchens and learn and then do the testing process. But I did not know business at all. Like, I know my school taught me how to cost out dishes and taught me how to, you know, utilize product and not waste and clean and all this stuff. And working in kitchens and restaurants, they taught me the same things. They just kind of reiterated the stuff. But no one was like, hey, man, let me tell you how what you're doing here affects the business as a whole. That never was introduced to me ever. So I was said to myself, I was like, I need to know business. You know, you could get an MBA, but that's learning the theories of, you know, accounting and all that stuff. That's not going out there and starting a business and adapting and pivoting and stuff. So I decided to use kombucha as the vehicle for me to learn business. And when I combined those two things, I started diving into kombucha way more. And this is where I came up with the philosophy or the base, the concept for my kombucha, which is at Ancho, they did cider that only focused on the apple varietals. And I was making kombucha focused on like I was doing what other businesses did, add flavors and pretty much, you know, add a fruit flavor to the tea. And I was like, why are we masking the tea? You know, there's thousands of tea varietals in the world and our country, we're not a big tea country. And I want to share the Zen and the patience that tea embodies. I want to share that with people in addition to tasting the tea. Like you don't really drink a whole bunch of different varietals of tea that's not like English breakfast or chai or there's not that many that people recognize or they're like, yeah, you know, my favorite tea is hojicha. And then then sounds like, what is that? So it started piquing my interest, and then I did that cycle again, which is research, test, apply, practice, and then execute. So I started researching tea and Taoism and Zen and all that stuff, and it was really intriguing me and is really kind of resonating with me and the kind of person that I want to be, which is, you know, more chill, kind of like take a breath and take time to relax with my wife and now my kid and my dog, because I was always goal-oriented and work and this is like oh man i gotta work i gotta do two three jobs or i gotta make sure i'm constantly making dollars and tea kind of like helped me see that i can do that and still take time for quality of life it's kind of integration of a different mindset and then also at that time i was an executive chef and i would turn 30 (laughs) so at that time i also was like what is my next goal run my own business. Obviously, that's the next step. So I started doing research, like, how do you start a business? And what does that mean? And that question in itself is like ambiguous, but also simple. So that's how the kombucha thing is like a drawn out beginning, because it went from hobby, then it went from peak interest into in a collaborative like business and product roadway. And then now we're here, you know, and the business, I feel like has a specific identity, because I want people to resonate with what I'm trying to provide. I want for people to taste the tea any time of the year. It doesn't have to be hot. I love hot tea. I'm drinking hot tea right now, but I also love kombucha with my dinner or in the middle of the day, but I don't want fruity kombuchas because they look good or I can identify that fruit or I don't know what that fruit is. I want to learn more about tea and embody the fact that less is more and take time for quality of life. And that's what I want my business to represent. In addition to, you know, I don't want to say artisan, but just 
small, intricately made product. That's the, why the name comes from Tortuga, because it's like, take your time, you know, take the time to learn it. And when you learn it and you execute and you practice, and then you can provide a product that people will respect, they will support because you're not rushing to you know, make numbers. I mean, numbers are important, but ultimately the product is why people are supporting you. And that's where the Tortuga is the embodiment of that for me. least. I think it's interesting that you are talking about in your kombucha, like actually being able to taste the tea. How long did you spend studying tea before you had your final products? And how did you choose which teas to sort of highlight in your kombuchas? I listen to the people, (laughs) people that support my business and all the people that I kind of shoved my kombucha in front of when I took their feedback. I read a couple of books. I joined the Kombucha Brewers uh, International. It's an organization for kombucha breweries. I researched in what people were doing, what people were not doing, how many businesses in Maryland were doing what I was doing before I just decided to jump in because it's not smart to just say, oh, I have the best pancakes. And then you just make pancakes and then everybody makes pancakes, including IHOP, you know, so... <laughs> I had to see if there was a space for me. And this is me learning business. I had to figure out, is there a place for me in Baltimore where I don't want to disrespect Hex or Wild, but is there a place where I can make what I want to drink and I still want to drink their stuff because it's not the same and we can all still make kombucha and respect each other's products because they're different. I wanted to find that space for myself. It It is competition because it's business, but ultimately the city is so small and they've worked hard to get to where they are. And I'm not going to discredit them for anything, but I'm going to work hard too. And I want to make sure that I know that this is my path that I'm carving. And I'm not just saying, oh, they could do it. I'm going to do it. You know, I'm going to say, this is what I want. And this is different from them. We're on the same track. They're laps ahead of me, but ultimately, I don't see me catching up, but I can see me at least still being in the race. So I want to do me and not compare. And I want to do some collabs with them. You know, I mean, it's all love. You know, the city and the industry right now is just getting crushed. There's no point of us fighting each other. So it goes back to that Zen. I don't want to attack anybody. I just want to make my product and have people enjoy it. And that's where the tea-oriented kombucha came from. And to give you an honest answer, I don't know which products are going to be the end-all be-all because some teas, they don't come out. And I was like, oh man, this tea tastes like chocolate. And then the kombucha will come out and it'd be like, oh, it didn't come through, you know? And so that's where finding that balance of like experimentation. I'll give an example. I sell to one restaurant and they're like, oh, we really like this one tea. Do you make it? And I was like, no. However, I don't even know what that is. And I will go buy it and test it and see if I can make it. And that is how I'm making like some of my products. Just listening to people, what people want and and also researching, say, oh, I don't know what that tea is and buying it and then seeing how it comes out. And also like all the people I sell directly to when they ask me questions or they say, hey, you have anything new? And then I always want to have something for those people who have supported since day zero, the people that shoved it in their faces. You know, I want to make sure I keep shoving new kombucha into their faces. I just kind of treat it like apples or grapes. I mean, there are tea sommeliers and I would like to be one one day, but ultimately I want to still provide a product where people can resonate with, but also I can still learn and be excited to not have to only make the same thing every single day. But I can make those same things because I know that one is approachable, one is different, and then these are just for all the people who want to just try something random, you know, and that... I have my consistent zen and then I have my human side of experimentation of uh, I want to try something new and I want people to be excited just as much as I'm excited. If it's good, that's awesome. If it's bad, that's awesome because then I know I can't make it into kombucha. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So when you got interested in sort of Zen and having time for your wife and your child and your dog, did that kind of coincide with you leaving the restaurant business and sort of wanting to shift into something else? Yeah, so uh, when obviously COVID, my the restaurant that I was at, which was 13.5 in Hamden, I came back from Ancho and I wanted to be a chef, the executive chef at 30. So then I went to be the chef there, but then COVID happened. And also it was a shock for me. I was like my first time being the head chef and I thought I knew what I was doing. I felt like I was doing a good job, but I was getting my groove and then COVID hit. And then once you lose momentum, it's like crap. And then I had a baby. <laughs> 
Well, I didn't have the baby. My wife had the baby. We had a baby. And so then we were kind of weighing the options. And the options are I can go back to work. And then we had to figure out childcare, which was also getting hit during COVID because of the contact and childcare businesses closing down because of their profit margins are really slim. And, you know, my restaurant, 35 was closed for a little longer. It opened them a week and a half after my daughter was born. And so I just had to prioritize my daughter and my wife. That was a very big change because I'm used to, like I said earlier, the, those goals and pushing and work. And we had to do a cost benefit analysis of the circumstances. It's like I was collecting unemployment. We planned like, okay, if you collect unemployment, I can take care of my child and my job is not open. And so I collected it until I couldn't. And this is the best route until this COVID thing is dissipates because restaurants are not going to get any better for at least another year and a half to two years. And childcare costs so much. So, you know, I would have to work two jobs, three jobs, which would also risk me being exposed and my family, or we can just work on a budget and transition the lifestyle. So that was the decision that my wife and I came to. And it was a hard decision because I'm still getting used to it. Because I'm home, I can organize kombucha and experiment at home and still do production. Because I'm so small scale, I'm probably not even making 10,000 bottles a year. 10,000 sounds like a lot, but <laughs> but I'm not even making close to that. And so I can still juggle that while still taking care of my daughter and doing household stuff. So now it's two years later from the founding of Tortuga Kombucha. And as he mentioned, Devon started Tortuga Kombucha in part to learn about business. And part of that was figuring out what financial model was going to work for his business. Do you take out loans, get investors, use your own money? And what Devon found was that a debt-free business model works for him. So a debt-free business model is somewhat self-explanatory, but Dave Ramsey, he's the personal money management expert. He's written several books. He has a podcast. He wrote on his website that in the recent economic downturn, and I'm thinking this is the downturn before COVID, that businesses without debt not only survived, they prospered. For small business owners who want to avoid debt for larger purchases, he recommends renting if you need a building space, outsourcing work, buying used, and paying cash. I'll link this article in the show notes. Devon doesn't have to worry about all of that, but I mentioned he has a family and his daughter is a baby under the age of one, and Devon is home with her while running and building his business. So this combination of balancing being a parent and having a home life with building a business inspired him to use this debt-free business model. It kind of motivated me to try to do a debt-free business model, which is hard. (laughs) It's like bootlegging, where you bootleg your product until you get to the markers to slowly become more legit. For example, when I was making it for myself and then giving it to people, that was a hobby. And then as I kept making more because people wanted it, I started collecting capital from them and using that capital to increase my business instead of taking out debt and making a business from whatever arbitrary starting point and then starting off with debt, which will ultimately create the stress that is opposite of the business mindset. So when I was working, I put a percentage of my check aside into my business bank account. And then when I had enough money to buy bottles or buy tea or labels, then I would. And then that was what I could sell. And so as I generated more revenue, then I was able to increase and then, you know, establish the business credit and then slowly grow. But I don't own a building or anything like that. I just have my assets, which is my product and my goodwill toward the customers. And I'm just going to keep slowly growing it. In five years, when I'm producing that 10,000 or more bottles, I can have a salary. I can still be home. And the profits from the business can go to something like supporting urban gardens or my family (laughs) because the debt is not there. And so that's my goal, ultimately. As Devon mentioned, in part, he started Tortuga Kombucha to learn about business and some of those aspects of running a business from getting things set in place to grow to the next level to all the administrative tasks that come with running a business have been his biggest challenges. And then his biggest success is the people. The people who like his product, who support him, who have kind things to say, and then on a personal level, just trying and actually being the best that he can be in all of his relationships and in all of his roles, those are the things that make him the most proud. 
I think scaling up would always be a challenge, especially if you don't have someone on your team that worked in a brewery or any place that does things in large scale. I would say that in organizing my books. Uh, <laughs> and the term books to me has always been like, what do you mean books? And this is why I wanted to learn business. But the books is like everything from how much money you spend on all of the write-offable tax expenses, those receipts, all of your invoices for purchases or cost of goods, those, you know, having that so you could refer back to it if you get audited, if you don't get audited, so that you can cross-reference how much you're spending versus how much you're getting in, and then whatever's left, and just seeing like, is this a profitable business? Is this a functional business, like a self-sustainable business? And if you don't stay organized, then you won't really know if you're making money or if you're losing money to sell their product. So I think learning how to organize that and then organizing it consistently, I think that was like the newest skill that I'm currently still learning. <laughs> and then I guess I would say just not starting sooner. I have this thing where I need to be like 125% certain that it's going to work. That's the reason why this low debt, low risk business model is what I'm approaching. I am confident, but I'm still skeptical. It probably could have started at least a year earlier, but I was just still, I call it, I didn't coin this term, but it's analysis paralysis, where I just like overanalyzing everything to the point where I'm not doing anything. I'm just thinking about all the possible things that could go wrong and at the same time not learning anything. So I feel like once I started, I would always hit those bumps. And then I would say, you know what, if I don't do anything, then nothing's going to happen. So I would just say my biggest feel as of right now is just not starting sooner. What about your successes? What are you most proud of? I'm proud that the people who have my product enjoy it. <laughs> that they are like, man, this tastes like tea and that it was delicious and that they come back and they buy more because that right there is love. That is the biggest success. And that's the only thing that like I'm asking for is people to say, hey, I had this kombucha is awesome. And then they talk it up. They're like, man, I don't know who or where, but this is good and you should try it. And that has been the biggest success. Just people jumping out, like emailing me because they think I have something to offer. That right there is a success in itself. I mean, business-wise, personally, you know, <laughs> learning how to be a better husband and learning how to be a dad, I think that's success too. Every day I try. I compare like fatherhood as like, like you have a project in college or high school, whatever, you're cramming at the last second and then you never get a grade forever. You know, like you're just, you're never going to get the grade because the kid's going to be alive until they're not. And they're always a changing person. So just still trying to learn how to be a better version of me and actively doing it as a dad, as a husband, brother, any of those terms, father. That is a good description of parenthood, I think. I haven't thought of it like that before. How do you balance being with your daughter and working on your business? Are you working during nap times, at night? How do you make that work? My daughter naps for 30 minutes. <laughs> oh, that's crushing. <laughs> So usually when I do kombucha is late night. I'll start after she falls asleep, after my wife and I have dinner from like 10 to like 2 or 3 in the morning. I would just do all that stuff. Sometimes on the weekend when my wife's at home and she's cool to like watch her because she works all week. She's a Baltimore City Public School assistant principal. So she's tired and mentally exhausted. So I don't want to say, oh, you off? All right, here you go. Even though I do that sometimes, I don't want to make it seem like it's that. But if I don't set those goals, like the people who purchase the kombucha motivate me to continue to make the kombucha. Because if I don't make it, they won't buy it. But if I do make it, then I have to sell it. So, <laughs> so it's like that thin line of, okay, if I stop production for a month, and then I sell out of all of the things that I had from the previous month, then I don't have anything for a whole month. So I always have to be at least a month ahead. So at late night and sometimes on the weekend, but usually it's late night when my daughter sleeps from 7.30 to 5. <laughs> <laughs> 
So I didn't catch this when Devon and I were talking, but I'm thinking he's not sleeping much right now if he's working pretty late nights and then his daughter gets up early in the morning. So that has been part of his business experience, just making the most of the time he has when he has it. Devon also says he didn't have an idea in his head before starting Tortuga Kombucha about what it would look like to be a business owner. But one thing that surprised him about being in this role is that once he started making his kombucha and he started to have people who liked his product, how he felt in response to that, which is that he wanted to make sure he always had kombucha in stock for his customers, not only to keep their business, but just to be there for them and to be consistent for them. I didn't have a vision because I didn't know. I didn't know. I just knew working for other people. I'm the only employee right now. Well, I'm not even an employee. I'm just the only person doing the production and sales and all that. So I think it's still so new because once I have an employee and then once you know, I'm distributing beyond state lines and stuff like that, then I feel like it's going to kind of evolve again. I guess I will refer back to what I just said, whereas if you don't make the product, people can't buy it. And so that's the one thing that surprised me is that like, when I wasn't making the product, nobody could buy it. So I didn't have to sell anything. But when I started making it and people started enjoying it and trying it, you have to make it because you don't want to let them down. You don't want them to say, hey, can I get some of that, you know, peppermint kombucha or that gemaicha? And then you're like, oh, I'm not making it this week. You know, I just felt like not doing it. So you got to wait. That is like, you can lose that person forever because you're not there for them when they want you to be there. So I think that's the biggest thing that I learned is just like, when people are there to support you and they believe in you and your product and what you put out there, and you're not there for them when they need you, whatever for whatever reason is, if it's for enjoyment, if it's for theirs in, if it's for you know to have with dinner, if it's because they want an alternative to alcohol, if they want something that they believe is healthy, and you can't provide it for them when they need it, then I feel like I let them down. So I try to make sure I have something, and that's where the business is kind of still where it is because people are like, hey, man, I really like you as a business. And it's kind of like a part of their life. And so I want to make sure that I can keep that consistency in their lives. So that surprised me. So for anyone listening to this episode, but in particular, if you're a small business owner yourself, I really recommend following Devon's business account on Instagram, which is at Tortuga Kombucha. I'll link it in the show notes. He posts these morning motivations on his Instagram stories that are really inspiring and that I feel can kind of help set the tone for a good day or can help you process feelings or put things in perspective if it's an off day. So I took a screenshot of a few of those motivations that he's posted. So here's one. Don't wait until you've reached your goal to be proud of yourself. Be proud of every step you take toward reaching that goal. And then another one is own your truth and tell your story. It's time to embrace your unique soul signature. That's a quote from Panache Desai. So I asked Devon if he has a favorite quote or a favorite motivational slogan, and this is what he said in response. I don't have a specific one. I just posted recently the, you know, find a hobby, find a job, and then find something creative. But most of the time is usually about self-worth and creativity and love because love is like always ever changing and like when you're in a relationship with somebody for so long it changes you change they change you know you get a you have a baby that changes things but also you know you got to show love to everybody else out there so like i try to share with people like hey you find love within yourself so you can share it with other people don't look for people to make you find yourself love you got to find it yourself and motivation style, like get up, get out, get something. Those are for me too. <laughs> They're mostly for me. <laughs> but I was using it for me and then I wanted to share because I don't know who somebody out there might need that too. So I post it and share it and hopefully it'll bring somebody some zen too. Oh yeah, I really enjoy the quotes and I'm sure I'm not the only one. So kind of just to segue into another direction, what is your best advice for other people who want to start a small business? I would say that... I mean, just got to keep trying. That's all. Like, you're never going to know unless you try. The failures are always going to be, they're always going to come. And you probably learn more from those than you do from winning. Because once you win a lot, you think you know it all. And then you won't try to learn more. So just keep pushing and maybe play your favorite song when you feel down. But ultimately, someone's going to appreciate what you do. And 
that's because you put a whole bunch of work and effort into it. And when you put that work and effort into it, someone's going to see. And that's what I would say. What song do you play when you put on your favorite? It's called Get Up and Get Out. It's like Outcast and Goody Mob. So pretty much the song, you just say you better get up, get out and get something. You can't like sit around doing stuff and making excuses. So that used to be my alarm every day until it started annoying my wife. But <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you just got to get up, get out and get some. You can't let days go by. Yeah. <laughs> That's the theme of that song right there. So this is a good ending, I think, for Davon's story. There are so many things that are sticking with me from the conversation we had, but I think the biggest thing is that Davon wishes he had started Tortuga Kombucha sooner. He was worried about what could go wrong, as probably any of us would be, but then he realized that, yes, he was going to have some stumbles along the way, but if he didn't start, then the opportunity to learn and the possibility of succeeding were never going to be options. You just have to start. And this is a lesson I've mentioned on here before, but I feel like it can't be repeated enough. You just have to dive in and start. So now, Baltimore friends and locals, before you go, I want to tell you where to find Davon's amazing products. And I really do like his kombucha. You can try Tortuga kombucha in a few different ways. I bought my first two bottles at Order and Chaos Coffee on Key Highway. You can also find it at Golden West Cafe in Hamden and several other local places. I would go to Davon's Instagram to find what places his products are available locally. You can also purchase flavors by the bottle on the Tortuga Kombucha website, which I will link in the show notes. And then there is one more option, and it's a great way to try a variety of flavors. And as I mentioned in the beginning of the episode, that's joining Davon's Kombucha Club, which is what I did. And that comes with 24 bottles of kombucha. There's three tiers of the club. The freestyle tier is where Devon chooses the kombucha flavors based on what he is working on or what he has in stock. This is the least expensive option and the one that I chose. And then there is a 50-50 tier and a player's choice tier, both of which give you more choice in what flavors you receive. Devon delivers the kombucha to your house, so you have to be local, mainly living in Baltimore City for this option. And then if you save the bottles, Devon gives you 50 cents back on each bottle. So it's a really good deal. It's a great way to try all of the different flavors that he offers and then some new flavors that he's working on. And it's just really convenient to have him drop off the case of kombucha at your door. So I've enjoyed every flavor I've tried, but my favorites, I think, have been lychee noir and the red plum longjing. If you go to the Tortuga Kombucha website, you can read descriptions about each of the kombucha flavors, like the bubble count and that kind of thing. So I would recommend checking that out to get an idea of what kind of flavors Devon offers. So that concludes this week's episode and the first episode of this mini-series about small businesses in Baltimore. I really want to thank Devon Pulliam from Tortuga Kombucha for talking with me for this episode and sharing more about his business and his perspective. I'm always honored that people are willing to share some of their story with me. I don't take that lightly. I feel like it's a little bit of of an honor that people are willing to tell me a little bit about their working life and a little bit about themselves. And so I thank Devon so much for giving me his time. Next up on this podcast, I'll have a story about Heidi Shank from Row House 14. She makes really funny cards and stickers, and she'll of course be talking about her work and her business. She was a teacher before starting Row House 14, so she'll talk about that transition. And then after that, I'll have a story about Maura and Henry, who own Zoe and Co. Candle Company. Their candles are really beautiful. And Maura and Henry are married. They have a three-year-old daughter, Zoe, and they started their candle business this year. So they'll be speaking from that perspective of being very new business owners and balancing that with being parents and working together as a couple. So that's just a sneak peek of what's coming up in the hopefully somewhat near future as part of this series about amazing Baltimore small businesses. Thank you so much for listening to We Built This Life today, and I will see you soon. Thank you for listening today to We Built This Life. If you enjoyed the show or if you have constructive feedback, I would love it if you would leave a review on your favorite podcast player. You can also come say hi on Instagram. I'm at We Built This Life. And if you'd like to be a guest on the show, please get in touch. I would love to hear from you. Have an amazing day and I'll see you soon.